0: Okay, so this morning we're going to carry on in our study through the Gospel of Mark. We've been going through this now for a number of weeks. Each of the Gospels gives us a different view, if you like, uh, of Jesus. Um, And Mark presents Jesus as the one who came to serve, uh, the one who came to do his Father's will. And um, we've said already that Mark seemingly got the information that he records in his gospel from Simon Peter. Uh, Mark and Peter become good friends, and uh, we read in Peter's epistle um, that Mark was uh, brought to the Lord through Peter's ministry, effectively. So uh, we see this kind of close bond to them. And as we've said already, it's almost as if Mark was sitting at Peter's feet and asking Peter, about the things that had taken place, the things that Peter had seen firsthand as he spent that three and a half or so years with Jesus. Uh, and Mark kind of just recording these things down, really excited about all the events uh, that took place, recording the miracles, recording all the places they went, the things they did. Uh, Mark doesn't give us a lot of narrative. But he does give us a lot of little snapshots. It's almost like uh, looking at a photograph album. You just get little snapshots of the the ministry of Jesus. And it's just that Mark wants to tell us about Jesus. Mark was so excited about this one who had saved him, who had given him a second chance. Uh, And we've talked already about the way that Mark potentially blew an opportunity to step out in ministry early on in his uh, walk. But God graciously... Put his arms around him through Barnabas and brought him back in. And later we see him becoming so important that Paul even says to, to, to those that he's writing to, bring Mark with you because he's profitable to me. This is an individual that at one point Paul has said, I don't want to go with him. He's, he's, he's trouble. he's hard work, he left us, don't, don't bring him. But later Paul says, no, no, bring Mark. And I think the reason that Paul wanted Mark is by the time we get to the time that Paul writes that, the gospel of Mark had been written. And this gospel was starting to circulate, and people were reading Mark's words. And Paul says, bring Mark, tell him to bring that book he's written, because it's really helpful to tell people about Jesus. You know, and here we are some 2,000 years later, and we still have a copy of this writing of Mark um, to tell us about Jesus. So, uh, Karen, before we go any further, let's just bow our hearts and just commit this uh, time of study to the Lord, shall we? Let's pray. Well, Father, your word says that it is living and powerful. That, Lord, everything in your word is profitable. Lord, your word gives us understanding. And we pray this morning that you open our ears and soften our hearts, that we would receive from you the things you have for each of us individually. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I don't expect you to read it. Very small print. It will go up on the website. But again, this is the list of miracles and this is kind of where we've got to now in Mark chapter 9. Uh, there's not that many miracles that Mark is going to record from this point on but there's 40 or so miracles recorded in all of the Gospels that Jesus did uh, in his time uh, throughout three and a half years. Uh, and as we've seen already a lot in the second column is Mark's list of the ones that he records. Um, so he records a number of different things, people being healed and delivered and, and uh, blind people's eyes being opened, leper being healed, And people that, the cripples were being able to walk again and so on. So Mark, you know, excited that anybody could do this. I mean, imagine today somebody stepping onto the world scene and doing this kind of thing. It would attract enormous attention. Well, Jesus was doing just that back in uh, the days of the the Gospels in uh, the area around Galilee and so on. But we're going to read into chapter 9, into chapter 9, so that's where we're going to pick it up in verse one of chapter nine now what we find is that we've got a continuation of the narrative from the previous chapter okay so if you've got your bibles just turn with me to mark chapter eight and we're going to just read through the last couple of verses and you'll see this this lead in because mark chapter eight if you remember what we we're looking at last week jesus has got the disciples to that point where he says to them who do men say i am You know, all these miracles and everything else have been to show people that Jesus was the Messiah. And then Jesus says to the disciples, so who is it then, after all of this, everything you've seen, who is it that men say I am? And then Jesus asks the disciples that really important question, who do you say I am? And we said last week, that is probably the most important question in the world for anybody to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? That question will determine where you spend eternity. It's so important that we understand who Jesus is, that he's not just some great moral teacher or any other thing that people will say, that Jesus really is the Son of God, and that he died for us, that he rose again to give us everlasting life. Now, this is a case, this is in chapter 8, we're up in Caesarea Philippi in northern Israel. And Jesus um, continues after the disciples say that we believe you are the Son of God. Peter steps forward and says that. Um, but then Jesus goes on and speaks about people being willing, if they want to be his disciple, they have to be willing to deny themselves. And as Jesus said, take up the cross and follow him. And then Jesus ends that by saying, you know, who will be, whoever will be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Jesus is saying, you know, putting everything in perspective, you know, we look at this world, we think we understand what reality is. But the real reality we haven't yet seen. Jesus is saying that the spiritual world is more real than... Than the physical world. And we can actually understand that even from, from what we know of science. You know, this, this podium here, this is what we think is solid, but it's not. It's not solid. It's made up of atoms. If you ever look at an atom and the structure of an atom, there is more space in an atom than substance. That means the majority of this is made up of empty space, but it has the appearance of being solid. You know, everything that we know in this world is only temporary. And what Jesus is saying is there's is something so much bigger, so much greater that is going to come that we'll, we'll see. And actually, that if we put all of our trust and our hope and our dreams in the, the things that are here now, well, we may gain the world, but if we lose our soul, of what value is it? And then Jesus goes on, and we now come on to the verses on the screen here, verse 1 of chapter 9. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there'll be some of them that stand here, speaking to his disciples, which shall not taste death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. That's an incredible statement. But bear in mind, Jesus is building on all the things he's been saying. He's been speaking of what is going to happen. The fact that he is the Messiah, just trying to bring their understanding to this this place. And then to say that actually some of you are going to get to see this kingdom of God. You're going to get to see this, this power, this, this other reality that you naturalized don't always see. And that's exactly what we're going to go on and look at in a moment. As I said, it's just a conclusion of the previous section. And things have been building to this crescendo now. And we're going to get to a really strange but incredible portion of the Gospels in this study this morning, but let me just recap. Jesus has proven through the miracles that he's done that he's the Messiah. No one could have done these things unless they've been sent from God. Now, Israel's leaders have rejected Jesus and they've constantly tried to find fault with him. They didn't want to accept him. He upset the status quo, he upset their comfortable existence. They had this so-called freedom from Rome to do what they wanted to, so to a point. And they were content with that. Jesus also had declined the people's desire to crown him their king. After the feeding of the 5,000, they wanted to take him and make him their king. But of course, that wasn't God's plan. And Jesus is following his father's plan. And and Jesus then goes and feeds the 4,000 that we looked at. And that's again 4,000 men plus the women and the children. And then this Gentile crowd would have happily worshipped Jesus, adored him, because he was meeting a physical need. You know, Jesus could have gone to the Gentiles and been worshipped, but again, he doesn't deviate from his mission because he knows there is something else more important. Because Jesus didn't just come to say, I'm the King of Kings. Because that wouldn't have been enough for us. Because unless Jesus had come to pay for our sin we'd have only been able to look on at a distance. So now Jesus has started to reveal this plan to his disciples and he's told them that he's heading down to Jerusalem from now on. And in Jerusalem, when he gets there, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be put to death, but after three days, he's going to rise from the dead. The disciples don't get it, they don't understand it. It sounds strange to their ears. Again, that question and Jesus has put to them, who do men say I am and who do you say I am? You know, as you said, this is really the real crux of the issue for each one of us. We can choose how we live, but you know, if you want life, as Jesus has said in the tail end of the last chapter, you have to die to your own desires, your own ambitions, your own plans, and trust Jesus with your life. You know, there's a new order of things coming, and everything is going to be turned the right way up again. And as Jesus said, you know, you might be able to gain the world or things of the world temporarily, but you'll lose everything ultimately. Or you could be willing to lose everything now. And as crazy as it sounds to trust Jesus for everything and gain eternally. And Jesus then makes his point that soon his glory is going to be seen and some of those who are standing there are going to get to see it. And so we read in verse 2, after six days... So the, in this area of Caesarea Philippi, this, this lovely kind of resort area in northern Israel where the Romans would come and they'd have spas and all sorts of things. And After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, these three that were always close to Jesus, and he leads them up into a high mounting apart by themselves. And we're told he was transfigured before them. We'll talk about that in a moment and what that really means. But just location, first of all, so we're talking right up at the northern end of Israel. So they've gone up from the, um, the area of the, the Sea of Galilee. You can see the blue kind of circle in the center of the screen. That's the Sea of Galilee. And they've gone up from there a little bit further up. Uh, and they've come to this place now, which we know today as Mount Hermon. Uh, in Scripture, again the same name, same place. Um, typically, most of the year, there's snow on top of it. It's a very, very tall mountain. It's the highest peak in the, the region. It's the highest mountain range in the Middle East at this point in this area. Um, there is a, a kind of ski lift that runs all the way up to the top at this point. I, I was there some years ago. It, there was no snow uh, at that particular point, but it's very, very high. And you get these beautiful views all over uh, the Sea of uh, uh, Galilee. And there you go, you see, so that's looking up again at, at the mountain. So, and then we're told that he takes them up to the top. And while he's up at the top of the mountain, his raiment, his clothing and everything about him became shining. Exceeding white as snow. So as no fuller on earth can white them. You know, we, we wash clothes to, to clean them, to make them white again, or, you know, if they're white to make them white again. Um... Sometimes if you put a red sock in, then it becomes pink afterwards, you know. But uh, uh, but this is where everything was, was so beautifully, perfectly white as they looked upon Jesus. Just an incredible transformation, just shining. And there appeared unto him Elijah, Elias, with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Now we'll talk about those two in just a moment, but literally what we find here... Uh, the word that Matthew uses is uh, the Greek word metamorpho, or the word we use, metamorphosize. Jesus was literally changed from the inside out. You know, we are body, soul, and spirit. And we, we put a lot of, kind of focus and attention on our bodies, uh, the outward appearance, the things that people see. But actually, spiritually, we should put more effort into our soul. That's who we really are. The Spirit, if you like, is our God consciousness. It's like our conscience that God has given us. We have been given, if you are born again, you've been given the Spirit of God to relate to God, to help us understand God, to explain spiritual things to us. The natural mind doesn't understand things spiritually. But we are essentially these spiritual beings. Now, our proximity to God will affect our appearance. And we see examples of this in Scripture. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, we have this account of Moses. Remember Moses went up Mount Sinai to go and receive the law? And he was up there for some 40 days. And we read this in Exodus 34, verse 29. It came to pass that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of the testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down, From the mount that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with them. Moses was literally glowing. He'd been in the presence of God. And this isn't just sunburn. This is this is something from within that is glowing through. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. They were afraid to get close to him. It was just an unnatural situation. But literally. From within, Moses was shining. As he been in the presence of God? Something had changed. You know, you and I, when we're in the presence of God, we change. When you and I come into contact with somebody who is godly, you know it. There's something that that is a almost like a, um, a kind of a, a health check um, spiritually. When we come across somebody who is spiritual, somebody who really loves God, and sometimes we can feel uncomfortable around them because. Actually, it makes us think, Actually, am I in the right place? Am I serving God? Am I loving God as I should? And when you come across somebody who is just on fire for God, it will impact you. But the point is that the closer someone is to God, the more it impacts other people as they look on from the outside. That's why it's so important that we are close to God in our lives, in our walk, because other people will see things. They may not understand, they may not discern, just like with Moses here something really important was going on in this situation. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 8, we read this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross, the verse goes on to say. You know, this is a a scripture that tells us that Jesus was God, is God. That Jesus took upon this human form. But unlike us, Jesus was without sin. Romans 8 verse 3 says this, for what the law, the law is God's perfect righteous standard, that's God's standard. If you can meet that standard, you get to go to heaven. What the Bible reveals is that none of us could meet that standard. It says what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, in other words, because we are fleshly, because we have those natural sinful desires and we get pulled away from the things of God, the law doesn't provide a path to God. So, what the law could not do, in that it was weak through our flesh, God sending his own son, notice in the likeness of sinful flesh. So, he wasn't sinful in any way, but he came in the likeness, he came in the same physical form that we have for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus was as every bit as human as you or I, but again without sin. Now, in Romans 5.18, we read this, Therefore, as by the offence of one, judgment came upon all men uh, to condemnation, the speaking of Adam and his sin. Even so, by the righteousness of one, of Jesus, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. So Jesus was completely righteous, though a human. For as by one man's disobedience against Adam, he sinned, Many were made sinners. Every descendant of Adam inherits sin. So by obedience of one shall many be made righteous. It's speaking of Jesus' obedience to the will of his Father. Now as we're looking at this portion in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 9, we come to a really important point and place. Because Jesus has lived his life perfectly before the Father. I want to read to you something by Oswald Chambers. He says this We have no corresponding experience to the events in our Lord's life after the Transfiguration. From then onwards, our Lord's life was altogether vicarious, lived for us, basically, in our place. Up to the time of the Transfiguration, he had exhibited the normal, perfect life of a man. But from the Transfiguration onwards, Gethsemane, the cross, the resurrection, everything is unfamiliar to us. His cross is the door by which every member of the human race can enter into the life of God. By his resurrection, he has the right to give eternal life to any man. And by his ascension, our Lord enters heaven and keeps the door open for humanity. On the amount of ascension, the transfiguration is completed. If Jesus had gone to heaven from the Mount of Transfiguration, he would have gone alone. He would have been nothing more to us than the glorious figure. But he turned his back on the glory and came down from the mount to identify himself with fallen humanity. Now one of the other things Oswald Chambers talks about is that what is taking place here is that Jesus, and the phrasing that Oswald Chambers uses, is Jesus had turned his innocence to obedience by a series of moral choices. The same kind of thing that we have the opportunity to do, to choose each day, moment by moment, to be obedient to God. And what Jesus had done in his life was be obedient, right from his birth, all the way through his childhood, all the way through his life. And he comes to this point, and if you like, for want of a better expression, Jesus completes the experiment. Jesus becomes so spiritual that the earthly starts to fade away. He's transfigured. He's literally glowing from the inside out. He, he proves, in a sense, the experiment that was started with Adam, that can a man be righteous before God? Well, of course, because of sin, the answer is no. But Adam started with that same starting point that Jesus started with. And Jesus proves that it could be done. That a man could be righteous before God. But of course, all humanity has fallen. The only way we can do this now is by our trust in Jesus Christ. No human can, no, no, no other man other than Jesus could accomplish this. But at this point, Jesus has almost, he's, he's completed the work. He's done everything he came to do. He's proven his obedience completely faithful to his father. And Jesus could have gone straight back to heaven from that point. But he doesn't. And this is what Oswald Chambers is saying. That up to that point, we can map our own lives in a sense along with Jesus. And although we'll look at where we failed and he succeeded, he, he rejected sin. We get to this point and then Jesus chooses to give up everything of heaven, all the glory, the majesty, everything. He could have just gone straight back, but he doesn't. He comes back down, and we'll see he comes back down into a demon-possessed valley. He comes back down because he knows that he has to go to Jerusalem. He has to go to the cross for you and for I. Now, we're told that Moses and Elijah are there. They meet with Jesus, and Peter just doesn't know what to say at this point. And Mark records this. You can imagine Mark and Peter chatting, and and Peter's saying, You know, I I really, you know, this was incredible. What what do you say in a situation like that? And we told him, Peter asked and said to Jesus, "Uh, Master, is is it good? It is good for us to be here. Uh, Let us make three tabernacles. Let us make three tents, booths, uh, you know, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he wished not what to say. For they were sore afraid. So, Peter relaying this to Mark, and Mark recording it, and Peter saying, I just didn't know what to say, I just bumbled and fumbled through you know we were afraid, this is incredible and then verse 7 and there was a cloud that overshadowed them and a voice came down out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son hear him You know, there's a number of times in Scripture that God speaks directly, as in God the Father. And this is one of them. You know, the world is out there looking for answers to questions, looking to make sense of life, looking to make sense of the world that we're in. God says, listen to Jesus. If we want to understand life, Listen to him. And then, as quickly as all of this has started, we read verse 8, and suddenly when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus, only with themselves. Now, Matthew's account tells us that they were discussing the events that were going to take place at Jerusalem. So Moses, Elijah, and Jesus had been brought to this meeting, or Moses and Elijah have been brought to this meeting with Jesus to discuss those things that were going on, that, that were going to happen in Jerusalem, and particularly pertaining to his resurrection. You know, it must have been incredible in heaven, Elijah and Moses there, and suddenly an angel, seemingly, we don't know the details, but would come up and say, you two, you're needed. And, you know, there's been all the other people. I mean, Daniel would have been there maybe, and, and David, and Elisha, Noah. Well, where, where are they going? What are they going to do? They've been called to come and meet with Jesus. And you can imagine all the others go, oh, can't we come? No, wait. And so Moses and Elijah get this call to come. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, because... Seemingly God had a, a task for them. We see Moses and Elijah clothed in white raiment here. The next time we see two men clothed in white raiment is at the tomb on the morning of the resurrection. Now we're not told that it was Moses and Elijah specifically, but Mark, sorry, but Luke, who's a doctor, a medical doctor, and researched everything thoroughly, makes the point that it was two men. Doesn't say angels, he says it was clearly two men that were there clothed in white raiment just as Moses and Elijah had been and the whole purpose of this meeting on the mount of transfiguration was to talk about what was going to take place with Jesus' death and resurrection and so then we see these two individuals why were they called to this meeting what was their role and was it them at the tomb i believe it was because two in scripture is always the number of witness And Moses and Elijah are very important because Moses, of course, is representative of the law. Elijah is representative of the prophets. And we find in Luke's gospel, we have the account in Luke 16 of the rich man and Lazarus and so on, but the account that's given there, we have those two things given to us as witnesses to all mankind, the law and the prophets. The law is there, The Ten Commandments and the other 613 commandments. They're all given to convict us of sin. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. That's what the law does. It gets to the heart. It shows us that we're sinful and that we need a savior because we cannot meet God's righteous standard. So the law is one of the witnesses that God has given. People say, oh, show me that God exists. Well, the law is in your conscience, it's in your heart. You all know that it's wrong to lie, to steal, to murder, to commit adultery, and so on. Nobody has to tell you that. The other witness is the prophets. And you know, incredibly, Peter, in his epistle, speaks of this occasion, speaks of this opportunity, or this moment when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. A kind of... Thing that you and I, if we were in this position, we talk about this probably every day for the rest of our lives. And Peter says, You know, it was great, but there's something even more overwhelming, even more compelling, and that's prophecy. Peter says, We have the more sure word of prophecy, it's more certain than even my own physical experience. Sometimes experiences we can get deceived, we cannot fully appreciate or understand what's going on. And Peter says, "Well, I was there. I saw those things when Jesus was transfigured." But you know that aside, we've got something even more wonderful. We've got prophecy, and prophecy convinces the intellect. In intellect, if anybody's got any doubts intellectually about whether the Bible is true, well, then we have prophecy. We have the future told thousands of years in advance. In detail. And there are so many prophetic scriptures. A month or two ago at Bible study, we spent the evening looking through some, just some of the prophecies that are there. You know, two and a half thousand years before it took place, in the book of Ezekiel, the day was prophesied that Israel would become a nation again in 1948 in May. And also the day was prophesied two and a half thousand years beforehand that Israel would recapture Jerusalem in 1967 in June. The very day. The, the, the day was prophesied by Gabriel and given to Daniel the day that Jesus would write into Jerusalem, presenting himself as the Messiah. But that's not all, because there are so many things that are prophesied about the days in which we are living in right now. Not just the countless number of Jews would return to their homeland, that Israel would become a nation again in one day, which they did. But the world systems, the governments of the world, the, the scripture speaks, of course, in Revelation about a chip or some sort of um, method being used for buying and selling that will be implanted in the hand or the forehead. And unless you have that mark, you won't be able to buy or sell. Now, 20, 30, 40 years ago, people joked about those things. They laughed about it. They couldn't see it happening. Well, nowadays, we've all got smartphones, haven't we? Smartphones are great because you do everything. You can go up and you can pay with your phone, can't you? You don't even need to get your money out anymore. But what is it really that's, that's doing that? A very small microprocessor inside. And of course the danger with the phone is that you could lose it. But if you could just put that processor in your hand and have that same technology so you could just tap and go, wouldn't that be so convenient? You wouldn't have to worry about going out and forgetting your your wallet or your purse. Or forgetting your phone. You could just, just tap and pay for everything. Or with your head. Yeah, it's going to be so sensible when this comes comes, you know, is presented to us. People are going, yeah, "What a great idea!" You know, we've we said before that there's all sorts of problems with with credit cards and so on, and that kind of form of payment. With, with a credit card, somebody can steal it, they can copy it, and there's all sorts of credit card fraud going on. That won't happen with your head. You know, somebody can't copy your head. If somebody goes into a supermarket with a copy of your head, the, the cashier is going to notice that no, no, this this mark, this system that's going to be used for buying and selling is going to be so sensible. And the Bible speaks clearly about those things. The Bible speaks clearly about the way the governments of the world are going to merge together and we're going to have a one world government. You know, who a few years ago would have predicted the political scene to be such as it is now? With the turmoil we've got with Brexit and with Europe and with with Donald Trump and all that's going on in America and you are just a few steps away from these prophecies being fulfilled. So we could spend all morning going on, on those things. The point is, we have two witnesses. We have the law, which shows us that we're guilty before God, and we have the prophets, which prove beyond any doubt that the Bible is true. Anybody that wants to look, there is abundant evidence. And so Moses and Elijah have this role seemingly as being witnesses representing the law and the prophets. And why are they there that morning of the resurrection? Well, I believe it's simply because they were there to witness the resurrection itself. You see, we don't have an account of the actual resurrection of Jesus. All that happens is that the disciples arrive on that morning and the tomb's empty, and then, of course, they meet Jesus. But I believe that Moses and Elijah were there to witness the resurrection. Now, we also see two men in white apparel at the time of the ascension. Two men again. Could it be Moses and Elijah? Well, we also see two men appear in the book of Revelation in chapter 11. At a time yet to come when the church will have been taken out of here, when the Lord has come and taken the church back home, there'll be a time where there'll be two witnesses, seemingly Moses and Elijah, because of the miracles that are described that they'll do. And for three and a half years in Jerusalem, they're going to preach. They're going to tell this world that it's gone off the rails and that the only way of salvation is through Jesus Christ. It will be offensive to people's ears. People are going to get so annoyed by these two people that for three and a half years we'll be preaching and it will be all over BBC News 24, it will be on CNN, it will be on all the world's news channels and media. And they're going to get tired of it. And eventually, some great world leader is going to appear and he's going to kill these individuals and people are going to be rejoicing they're actually going to throw parties there'll be street parties and everything for three and a half days and then suddenly as their bodies are laying in the street in jerusalem and people are celebrating they're going to get up and they'll be resurrected and the world is going to be in utter shock and then they're suddenly going to be taken up to heaven and the world will not know what to do those two witnesses seem to be Moses and Elijah. These two characters have got a lot yet to, to play out. So, verse 8, Moses and Elijah suddenly are no longer there. They see Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them. They should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. Now, seemingly nothing is said. They don't share this. But after Jesus was risen, they start to talk about this. And, of course, Mark now is recording what Peter was saying about this. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. You know, like us, sometimes we read things in Scripture and we think, well, that can't be literal, surely. They were doing the same thing. But, of course, it was. Jesus meant what he said and said what he meant. And they asked him, saying, why say the scribes that Elijah, Elias must come first? And he answered and told them, Elias very, uh, verily cometh first and restores all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught. Now, of course, what, John, what Jesus is referring to here is John the Baptist, who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He came to prepare the way, just as Elijah will do, as we were speaking about a moment ago. He says, but I say to you that Elijah, Elijah is indeed come and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed as it is written of him. Okay, so speaking of John the Baptist and what was accomplished, John came with that Elijah-like spirit. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straight away all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question you with them? We'll leave it here this week because I want to build on this next week because there's a lovely element here where we see a shepherd caring for his sheep. Jesus comes back down into this situation and we're going to see that there's this controversy over this this demon-possessed individual and so on. We'll talk about fasting and other things that come out of this. But Jesus sees the scribes and the Pharisees talking and asking the people questions. And Jesus comes in, and it's almost like you see somebody... You know, if, I, if I came in and saw a grown-up talking to, to my daughters, my initial question is, what, what are you saying to them? What are you asking them? Is that kind of that parental protection, that, that, that love, that care? Oh Jesus does exactly the same thing here. He steps into this scene, and it's like, excuse me, what are you saying to them? What are you talking about? And we just see another element of the wonderful compassion of Jesus, the love that he has for us. As Adrian was sharing earlier, that love that is so faithful. We have an amazing God who is recorded in Scripture all that has been, all that is yet to come. He's given us his law to convince and convict our hearts of how much we need him. And you know, there's a wonderful eternity. As Jesus was transfigured, turned into... You know, from the inside out. That's a promise that's there for all of us. In the book of Corinthians, chapter 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it speaks of that same type of change that one day will happen to all believers. That the natural will be changed into the supernatural. The way it puts it is that the mortal shall put on immortality. Corruption will put on incorruption. Not about you, but the older I get, the more I'm conscious of that corruption. You know, the body kind of aches and hurts far more than it used to. We live in corruptible bodies. But all of that can change. You know, once again, as we said at the start, this is just, in fact, C.S. Lewis put it beautifully, that for now we live in a shadow land. This is just a glimpse of reality. What is coming? What is ahead of us? The kingdom that... Jesus is coming to establish will be eternal. And every one of us have the opportunity of being part of that. If we're willing to die to self, to trust him, to trust him with our lives. And there is no greater decision than we can make than to do that. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for this opportunity, this time this morning. Lord, this reminder once again, of just who Jesus is, that he is a truly God manifest in the flesh, that he came to this earth to live a sinless life, to die for us and to rise from the dead so that we can have new and everlasting life. Oh Lord, please impress these things upon our hearts and minds. Help us to understand them. Don't let us carry on, Lord, ignorant, not wanting to know, not wanting to understand. But Lord, just as we saw Jesus transformed or we record that in the record here that Jesus was transformed, then Lord, transform us also by the renewing of our minds that we would see spiritually, that we would think differently in the way of this world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, may God richly bless you and through this coming week. Let's spend some time fellowshipping together over teas and coffees. And remember, no touching library books. Donc, merci.